Hello, and thanks for listening to this sermon from Ethos Chicago. We're a church that worships and serves together in Chicago, Illinois, and you can find us online at ethoschicago.com. Good morning, Ethos, and welcome to Sunday Worship with the three of us. Let's begin with this call to worship from Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And now let's pray together. And God, we are in awe of you and how great you are, creator God, who made the heavens and the earth. I pray that you would help us as your people to praise you with shouts, with all of our strength and all of our mind and all of our heart and soul, for you are worthy of that. Help us to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.
God of our salvation. Hosts on high His power proclaim. Heaven and earth and all creation. We're going to enter now into a time of confession, which we will do today through song. So we'll sing our prayer of corporate confession, and then in the middle there will be a time of silence for each of us to confess privately. Falling down upon our knees, sharing now in common shame. Fences guard our hearts and homes, comfort sings a siren tune. We're a valley of dry bones, lead us back to life in you. Lord, we fall upon our knees, we have shunned the weak and poor.
And now here, these are words of assurance of pardon from 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Hello, Ethos. Good to be with you again. I know I say this every week, but seriously, thank you for making the time to join us for worship. Well, let me start with the question. Do you like surprises? <clears throat> I guess that kind of depends on what the surprise is, really. But <clears throat> as I mentioned last week, Jonah is a book filled with surprises. And you might say, in fact, the whole book is intentionally designed to surprise us, to shock us, really. I mean, you have a prophet who runs from God. You have sailors who turn out to be the most devout, most God-honoring worshipers in the book, greater than God's own prophet. You have a fish who 
turns into a savior. You have nasty, ruthless city people from the, from the big city. And really, is there any other kind? Um, but yet they turn out to be the most spiritually sensitive people in the story. And what about the end? It ends with a thud. I mean, this is the worst ending of any book in the Bible, maybe any story ever. I mean, there's no happy ending, no marching bands or show tunes, no everything's going to turn out right. It ends with Jonah in a huff and God having spoken, and we're not sure that anybody's listening. You know, I was thinking this week, maybe the best way to approach this book is to approach it like a maybe six, seven, eight-year-old Hebrew child who's listening to one of their parents read the story to them. I mean, in a sense, you almost have to adopt this mindset to really appreciate all the surprises that are going on. For instance, right off the bat, the first three verses, you know, you get the verse that says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And the child goes, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. This is going to be a story about a prophet. And, you know, the, God says, go to Nineveh because their evil has come against me. And they go, okay, I get that. And then it goes, third verse, and Jonah rose and fled from God and fled to try to go 3,000 miles in the other direction. You can just, you know, children hate when you try to trick them. And you can just hear the child go, no, 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 that's, daddy, stop it. Stop it. Read it like it's supposed to be. He's a prophet. God said to go to Nineveh. He went to Nineveh. Or think of later in the chapter. You know, just we're going to get to it in a minute. You know, the storm has come and the child's getting excited. And it says that Jonah went below the deck and what? Fell asleep. And the child's going, what? No. Mommy, stop it. No, no, no. No, that's not what happened. He went downstairs to help the sailors. No, I know I get it. He went downstairs because he wanted to be alone to pray. He's a prophet, so he went to pray. No, no, sweetie. He went downstairs and he fell asleep. This story stinks. No, here's the point. Read it like that. Read it with the idea that things should be happening one way and they almost never do because the whole book is designed to surprise us. It's, it's as if the narrator wants to, to put us back on our heels, to set us off balance. He's changing all the categories because he wants us to think. And I really hope that you will do that throughout the series. And ultimately, the narrator is giving us all these surprises and wanting us to think because through a wayward and rebellious and yes, even a racist prophet, he wants to teach us lessons about racism and nationalism. And most importantly, as I mentioned last week, about mercy. Specifically, that mercy receivers need to be mercy givers. People who have received and have experienced and have felt the mercy of God need to be people who extend that mercy to others, even people who are not like themselves. Now, last week we started appropriately with chapter one, of course. And last week we said that chapter one is all about the problem. Chapter one is about the problem of why it is so often that we find it hard to extend mercy to others, particularly people who are not like ourselves. And this week, we want to continue to look at lessons about the problem through the example of Jonah, the running prophet. But before we launch into that, let's pray and ask God to bless us in this time. Father, we really do need you to be the true teacher. I pray that your spirit would take your word and make it come alive to us. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us listening now that you would give us receptive hearts, that you'd give us ears to hear and 
minds to understand and Lord, hearts to receive what you would have for us. Lord, it's not a particularly upbeat topic that we're looking at, but I pray that you would use it to challenge us, to encourage us, to move us in the direction of trusting and loving you more. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we said that there's three lessons that the running prophet teaches us about this problem. We said he teaches us about the nature of the problem, the effects of the problem, and what God is prepared to do in response to the problem. And last week we spent all our time looking at what the running prophet teaches us or tells us about the nature of the problem. And we said that in essence, it's our sinful hearts, sinful hearts that attempt to build an identity for ourselves, by ourselves, apart from God. And that, by the way, is what we said is the true definition of sin. Sin is about way more than breaking the rules. It's about trying to form an identity for ourselves, by ourselves, apart from God and His Word. Or to put it in another way, as we said, the essence of sin is making something besides God the center and highest love of our life. It's to make something besides God the way we get our, our value, our meaning, our worth, our significance in life. And here's the thing, as we said also, just like Jonah, a very religious man, a prophet, you can do it under a veneer of religiosity, of morality, or maybe even better for us or more relatable to us, you can do it under a veneer of niceness or politeness or respectability or even perceived humility. Well, this week we want to continue to look at what the running prophet teaches us. And this week we want to look at the effects of the problem and what God's prepared to do about it. So let's, let's just jump into it and let's look at what I'm talking about with respect to the effects of the prophet. And so what do I mean by this and why is this important? Let me start with the second question, the importance. In large part, we're going through this because it's about warning signs helping us to know when we are getting into a bad place, when we are in danger. It's like the warning lights on your car. You know, when they go on, you know that something bad is about to happen or will happen if you don't do something about it. Or in this way, you could say it's also about diagnosis, helping us to know and understand the condition of our own hearts. It's like a doctor looking at the symptoms so that she can know what the underlying cause is. So, Here's what I mean when I talk about the effects of sin. You know, I'm not a psychologist. Didn't play one on TV, but here's what I do know. If you make something besides God the center of your life, something will eventually happen to you. You will have what one author, one expert called an identity implosion. And we see that really in this chapter in two ways. First, we see it in what can be described as the deathly sleep. Notice in verse 5, in the middle of the storm, I've already mentioned it, Jonah goes below deck, and what does he do? He falls asleep. And again, this is meant to be another one of those surprises. I mean, you might think he would go down and help the sailors bail out water, maybe, or tie things down, or like I said earlier, maybe you'd think he'd go down as a prophet and find a quiet place to pray. But no, what does he do? He goes down, and he just falls asleep. And just so you know, this word that is used here is the Hebrew word for a very deep sleep. I mean, we're not talking about a nap. It's the exact same word that is used in Genesis 2, Genesis 2 when it talks about God putting Adam to sleep so that he can take a rib out of Adam to create Eve. I mean, this is like anesthesia. 
I mean, you are absolutely out. And so here's the point. If sin is basing your identity, your salvation, if you will, on something other than what God says about you, when your self-salvation strategy goes wrong, when you lose that thing, when anything comes between you and that thing that you've placed in the center of your life, you don't just experience distress. You don't just experience discouragement. You don't just experience sorrow. You don't just experience what we might call normal depression. You experience an identity implosion. You experience sickness unto death, existential despair, a psychological breakdown, and it comes inevitably when you make something besides God the central thing of your life because anything besides God's unchanging love will inevitably and eventually let you down. It's the nature of things. It's the nature of the world. I mean, let me make this crystal clear what I'm talking about here. I mean, what besides God and his word is stable in this life, let alone eternal? I mean, what if you base your life on it? Can you count on never to let you down, to never fail you, to never be subject to being taken away, to never be shaken by circumstances? There is nothing. There's nothing in the world like that. I mean, think of your loves, your career, your kids, your parents, your finances, your social status, your health, your looks. There is nothing permanent and stable about any of those things. And yet so often we make those things the center of our lives. I mean, two people up for a promotion. Neither of them get it. I mean, one of the individuals, of course, is sad, discouraged, distressed seeks out counsel, but another person is experiencing this, what I'm calling sickness and a death. It's not normal to rest, not normal sickness. They're having an identity to push, and they can't get out of bed in the morning. Why? Because a second person to get this position was their identity. It was the reason that, that they could know that they were a good person, the reason that they could know that their life was mattered. Moving up the ladder was how they knew that they had status and respectability, not just in the company, but in the outside world that the world would know that they're a success. And when things don't happen that way, when their career goes bad, they just can't take it because their career was really about themselves, about getting an identity. You know, the second way we see this identity implosion is found in verse 8 and 9. You notice there that the stalers start asking Jonah all sorts of identity questions. They start asking, you know, what... Do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And if you notice, Jonah's response is very interesting. He starts with the last question. He says this, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And when you're reading this again, these are, this is one of the most, those surprising moments. It's one of those surprising moments the narrator gives us to back us back to start us to knock us back a little bit. And you should be saying to yourself, I mean, what the heck? I mean, what has Jonah done up to this point in the story to make anybody think that he fears the Lord? And here's the point. When our identity implodes, when the center of our life starts to crumble, we become incoherent, inconsistent people. Our world and our actions stop matching up the people who we want to be, the person who we want to be, the person that we think we are isn't who we really are. And it's here. It's here after he identifies himself in this way that we see the utter emptiness of Jonah's heart. 
And that's why many scholars see this as the pivotal moment in the chapter, because here Jonah is exposed. It's out in the open. Who he says he is and who he really is don't match up. And I love the sailors here. You know, the sailors provide what literary experts call a foil. They represent and provide a contrast. They show, in this instance, how really bad things are. And that's why, at the end, we see the sailors, again, hate the historic stereotype. Not, I don't really hate it, but the historic stereotype, you know, is this, that sailors aren't exactly known to be the most moral bunch. But here we see these guys move from fear to worship, to awe and wonder at the greatness of this God. And the whole point, the contrast is, look at these pagans. They're the ones who really get it. They're the ones who really worship and fear the Lord. And Jonah, the prophet, the religious guy, from the right people, from the right pedigree, the one who should get it doesn't. He never does. You see, the sin, sin, the loss of true identity, not only leads to a deathly sleep, but it leads us to becoming incoherent people because our identity has imploded. Our words and our actions don't match up. They don't have any real meaning anymore. You see, God has come along and he has exposed Jonah. He has revealed the real, real core of his life. And as a result, Jonah's whole identity simply blew up. It imploded. Now here, as I mentioned last week, by way of reminder, because this is so critical for us in understanding the entire book, what is Jonah's true source of identity? I mean, why did he implode? Well, you simply have to ask, why did Jonah run away from Nineveh? And the answer simply is because the last thing that Jonah wanted to do was in any possible way to help these heathen Assyrians. And why? Well, first of all, because he represented the mindset of the Israelite people at the time. He was a hyper-nationalist. They had this belief that we are chosen, therefore we are great, we are blessed, and everybody else is beneath us. Everybody else is inferior. Everybody else is not worth our time. But more specifically, Jonah is a successful leader of a successful nation. As I mentioned, we learn in 2 Kings chapter 14 that Jonah is the religious voice behind the incredibly successful military campaign of King Jeroboam II, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jonah supported the king's expansion policy, spoke out in favor of it in his preaching. And the king and Jonah were, in a sense, political allies. And Jonah knew if Assyria, and remember, Nineveh is the capital and chief city of Assyria, if Assyria repented, if God spared Assyria, then Assyria continued to remain a threat to Israel. You see, by running away, Jonah was showing us what was really in his heart. Jonah was showing us what was really of most value to him. Jonah was saying, in essence, even though I'm a prophet, even though I'm supposed to be basing my entire identity and having it wrapped up in what God wants and what God says for me to do, more important than pleasing God and doing what God asks me to do, more important than that is my identity as a leader of a successful nation. Jonah's saying, that's what really gives me my identity, and if anything goes wrong, wrong with that, I won't have a self. You see, Jonah may have looked great on the outside, but inside his heart was ready to implode, and it did. 
And here's where sin is. Again, let me make this very, very clear. Do you realize that you could be living a life of horrible sin, even though on the outside you, you're keeping all the rules, even though on the outside you look like you have your life totally together. I mean, Jonah's a successful leader of a successful nation. He has all the status and the perks that come with that. And then all of a sudden, as he gets exposed by God, he's on a ship running 3,000 miles away to hide in Spain. I mean, it's like we read all the time. People who are these model employees seeming out of nowhere start to embezzle. And all of a sudden, as they're being carted off to jail, everybody goes, how did they get here? Or suddenly, out of nowhere, a good father and a good family man has an affair and the family blows up and everybody is wondering, you know, what happened? You see, suddenly these terrible things start to happen. And you say, I don't know where it came from. I wasn't raised that way. I don't know why I did that. Here's why. Because your real savior, your real core, your real source of identity became threatened or you lost it. And because of that, you blew up and you started doing things you never thought you would do. Because underneath all the rightness, all the morality, all the religiosity, all the niceness and respectability, you were really living a life of sin because you were building a self without God. So let's go to the last point. What is God going to do about this? And let me start by saying what God has no intent of doing. He has no intention of making Jonah a better person. A better person on the outside is what I mean. He isn't going to give him more rules to follow. He's not going to give it a fix, him a fix-it manual. He's not going to give him a better self-help book. No, what Jonah needs is not a better outside. Jonah needs a better heart, a renewed heart. Jonah needs to be converted. And here's the thing. He's not going to be converted by getting his act together. He's not going to be converted by cleaning up his life. He needs a transformation of identity at his core, which can only happen when we experience the grace and love of God. Jonah needs to have the love of God and the grace of God be the thing that drives his life. And that's going to take and it does take a radical conversion. And so how does God begin to do that? And we see it right here. He sends a storm. Verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Let me ask you this. Do you know anybody who just was sort of walking around on the streets, and suddenly they say to themselves, you know, I suddenly realized that even though I look very stable on the top, underneath, I'm incredibly unstable. I mean, think about it spiritually and psychologically. I'm basically incredibly unstable. I mean, you know, I have no real self, sense of self. And actually, I could just blow up if just two or three thing, bad things happen. You know, I now realize that I have wrongly ordered my loves. I love things other than God too much. God's not the real source of affirmation in my life. Come to think of it, I need to be converted. I need a radical change of heart. Let me ask you, do you know anybody who's had that kind of epiphany just walking around under normal circumstance? I doubt it. Truth is, we need a storm. Radical conversion almost always comes as a result of a storm. It takes a storm 
before we start to see the problem that is inside. It's, it takes a storm before we start seeing the futility of running. And we see this near the end of the chapter in verse 12. Jonah acknowledges that the storm is his fault and he offers himself up and he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Now here's the thing. We don't actually or really know what's in Jonah's mind and heart at this point. I just got to tell you, some people see this as Jonah's final racist act. He's astute enough to know that he's never going to win this battle because he's fighting against God. And because he'd rather die than help out the Ninevites, and because he knows he can't take his own life under Jewish law, he says to the sailors, in essence, help me out. Just throw me over and let's be done with it. That's one view of this. Others see it more positively and give Jonah more altruistic intentions. They see Jonah saying, you know, I don't, I don't know where all this is going to lead. I, it might even lead to my death. But I do know the only way to stop the storm is for me to give myself up and to stop running. But here's what I want to suggest. Either way, even at this point, I don't believe that Jonah truly gets it. But we as an audience are meant to. We are meant to see that Jonah needs more than anything else in his life an experience of God's mercy. If Jonah is ever going to be able to give it to others, Jonah has to see and to feel and experience for himself the grace and the mercy and the love of God that exists underneath the waves, underneath the crashing storm, underneath the wrath of God. You see, if Jonah has any chance of being redeemed, he has to see and feel the love and mercy of God underneath the waves. And so that brings us to verse 17, where it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that's where the chapter ends. But here's the last question I would have for us today. Why? Why is there hope for love and mercy beneath the waves? Why can God just save and forgive Jonah? Well, here's why. Years later, Jesus Christ said to a number of religious leaders who were looking for a sign of his Messiahship, the only sign I will give you is the sign of Jonah. And just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights and came forth, so will I. I will die, but behold, a greater Jonah is here. Do you know why Jonah was able to be thrown into the wrath of God and be saved? Do you know why you can look at the worst things that are happening to you right now and know that God is really trying to help you and to love you and to care for you and to refine you? Because there was a true Jonah, the one who was thrown into the real ocean of God's wrath, the real storm of God's wrath, and no one caught him. No one saved him. He just sank and he sank and he sank and he did it for us. And only when you know that, only when that begins to sink in, will it transform your identity from the inside out. We don't change identity just by trying to be better people. We have to see what he's done. We have to experience the grace and the mercy of God. And it's got to move you from the inside out. It's got to change your affections. And let me tell you, it will, it will. Let me ask you, do you have the courage to grab hold of that? It takes courage. 
It takes courage to grab hold of what Jesus did for you because it means that you're so sinful that he had to die for you. But you are so loved that he wanted to. This is the remedy for the sickness of our hearts. But what a remedy it is. There is love and mercy beneath the waves. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that there really is love and mercy beneath the waves. We thank you for the solution to our sinful hearts that you have really given us in the greater Jonah, our Savior Jesus. Lord, I pray that out of your grace and mercy, you would transform our hearts, removing those things that we placed in the center which will always disappoint, replacing them with an assurance of your love, with you at the center, Lord, because you never disappoint. Lord, work and transform our hearts to your glory and for our good, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take our offering now. You can do that online at ethoschicago.com, and then let's sing our doxology together. God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I 
Two reminders uh, before the benediction. The first is this. First, the thanks. Just thanks for everybody who came out uh, last Sunday for our time of communion. Again, incredibly encouraging time. Thanks for being involved with that. And then second, I, I mentioned this in my email, but just so you know, we're going to do these every other week. So we won't be doing one this Sunday, but we will be doing another communion time in the same place, same time uh, on August 30th. So if you feel comfortable with it, uh, please join us at that time. And then second, as I've been saying every week, but particularly now that we're waiting for a stimulus package, if you're waiting for that, know that we are here uh, and we want to help. If you have a need, financial, physical, spiritual, emotional, please let us know so that we can be there for you. So with that, let us now receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he turn his countenance towards you and give you peace. And now as God's people, go in peace and spread God's peace. And all God's people said, Amen.